Welcome to the Kindling's Muse podcast, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. And now, here's your host, Dick Stock. Thank you very much. This is Dick Staub, and I want to welcome you to the Kindling's Muse of Earl Palmer Ministries. Uh, this event is taped for podcast in front of a live audience at Kane Hall on the uh, campus of the University of Washington. Each month, uh, Reverend Earl Palmer selects a book every thoughtful person ought to read. He begins with some opening comments, uh, followed by a conversation with me, and then we open it up for questions and comments from the audience. Tonight, our subject is experience. Exploring, explaining her faith, Joy Davidman, who was the wife of C.S. Lewis, and her book is Fire on the Mountain. No, Smoke on the Mountain. Smoke on the Mountain. <laughs> yeah. There okay, was fire gonna, there, too, probably. <laughs> let's see. Smoke on the water. Smoke. I'm going to correct it in my notes. This is the type A personality. Uh, smoke on the Mountain, which is created by the fire on the mountain, which is, should have been the subtitle of the book. But uh, this is the most interesting person. If you ask yourself, based on the reading you've done about C.S. Lewis and who he is as a person, who would have been the right person to fall in love with him and marry him and be his spouse? Well, you're going to find out more about that tonight, but let me just mention a few words that describe her. American, child prodigy, poet, communist, atheist, Lover of fantasy literature, who read Fantasties, George MacDonald's book as a child, and was just enthralled with it. A divorcee with two sons. That's a little bit of who she was. And C.S. Lewis did fall in love with this woman, and she was an amazing partner for him. And so now will you join me in welcoming Earl Palmer as we talk about Joy Davidman. Well, Joy David was the wife of C.S. Lewis, as uh, Dick has just said. They were married April 3rd, 1956, and she died at age 45 in 1960. So they were married for four years. And uh, now let me tell you about her. Who is Joy? She was a New York City girl from a strict, non-religious Jewish home of Polish ancestry, she was a brilliant writer and, and, and a student early on. While she was still a student at Hunter College and Columbia University, she wrote a book called Letter to a Comrade, which uh, won awards uh, and established her as a writer from that point on. And she was just an, un, uh, just an undergraduate at that time. It was published by Yale University Press, and she got uh, numerous awards for that book, Letter to a Comrade. Her circle of friends were young New York radicals. She became a member of the Com American Communist Party in the, in the 30s, and she met her husband, Bill Gresham, who was also a young communist, just back from the Spanish Civil War. And uh, so they were both members of the American Communist Party. He was a, a writer as well. He wrote, a, he wrote a, a, a novel called Nightmare Alley 
for which that was when they were married and received quite a bit of money from that because they, uh, Hollywood wanted to make a film from that movie, uh, from that book, and so they had some prosperity for a while in their, in their life together. They were married in 1942, and they had two sons, David and Douglas. Joy was staff writer, actually, for the communist journal called The New Masses. So she was very active in the Communist Party at that time. But things began to happen in her life because she was a reviewer of books. That was a dangerous thing for, to be a young communist and to review books for the new masses uh, because she had to be completely doctrinaire. Uh, for instance, in a, in a, during that period in the, in the uh, Communist Party, the proletariat have to win every battle and the bourgeois have got to lose every battle. And so... She, he, she would read novels, and the novels were uh, quite boring. And then she began to say how boring these uh, novels were that were coming out of the Soviet Union and coming from American communists because you know f from the very beginning who's got to win because it's got to be doctrinaire and who's got to lose. And so she began to complain about that, and that's just a little aside. And, but at any rate... Uh, so disruption began to happen for both uh, Bill, her, hus her husband, who was bored. He was bored with the speeches that he was listening to in the Communist Party. And like a lot of young communists in the 30s, they were, uh, of course, uh, absolutely loyal to Stalin and to uh, uh, Soviet communism. And, and that meant in the early days during the Hitler-Stalin pact, they had to be loyal to uh, what... Russia was doing with Germany. And that began, especially in the invasion of Poland, that began to be a, a very hard pill to swallow. And so many uh, American communists at that time began to become disillusioned with the Communist Party because it was so slavishly following whatever Stalin was when he was pro-Nazi, when he was pro-Hitler, then they, they had to be pro-German. And then when, he, uh, when Ger Germany, of course, invaded Poland, invaded uh, uh, Poland, Russia joined in that invasion. And so that bothered a lot of communists that felt that was unjust. And then uh, when the, uh, Germany broke this Hitler-Stalin pact and invaded Russia, then of course they had to be pure uh, Russian in their loyalty uh, as an American communist. So th this young couple were, were getting disillusioned with that. And uh, Bill was getting bored with the speeches and uh, and Joy uh, had an intellectual problem, but it came, ironically, with their, the birth of their first son. Their first child, David, when she's, she has that little boy, and one day, uh, here's how she puts it herself in, in her uh, disillusionment with the Communist Party. My husband had lost his enthusiasm for communist speeches, and what war did for him, childbirth did for me. My little son was the real thing, and so was my obligation to him. By comparison, my duty to that imaginary entity, the working class, seemed the most doubtful of abstractions. I began to notice what neglected neurotic waifs the children of so many communists were, and to question the genuineness of a love of mankind that didn't begin at home. And so she was beginning to get disillusioned and, uh, and, and so was her husband during that time. And then an amazing thing happens that uh, 
Lyle, uh, Lyle Dorset, a good friend of mine who used to be a professor here at Seattle Pacific and wrote the book uh, on Joy Davidman called And God Came In. Uh, he uh, quotes her as she explains what happened in the spring of 1946. Uh, she had an amazing experience, and she tells about it uh, in, uh, and, and narrates it for us. She said, there, uh, uh, I was in, her, in the room, uh, by the way, her husband had a drinking problem, a very big drinking problem. Also, he was not a very faithful husband, and so he would have various affairs, and then he would have drinking bouts, and then he would disappear, and, and here she is with this little boy, uh, that she's raising, and then all, then this, the the two boys were only a few months apart, and so she has these two little babies that she's raising, and he is off on a trip, and then he and he doesn't let her know where he is, and she's desperate to know what's happening to him, and so she feels very much alone, and she tells this story that she had, uh, this experience she had during that time of of absolute aloneness. She was in the room, she said, and. Uh, there was a person with me in that room, directly present to my consciousness, a person so real that all my precious life was by comparison a mere shadow play, and I myself was more alive than I had ever been. It was like waking from sleep. So intense a life cannot be endured long by flesh and blood. We must ordinarily take our life watered down, diluted as, a, as it were, by time and space. My perception of God, she had this experience, and she said it lasted a half a minute. That's how long it lasted. But it was a tremendous uh, interruption of her life, and it caused her to uh, realize that uh, God existed. She had been an atheist, of course, and uh, a doctrinaire atheist at that time. And so... Uh, she, uh, she argued that the, her encounter with the living God was not a comforting illusion conjured up to reassure me about my husband's safety, although my surprise was so great that for a moment it distracted me even from my fear. Only for a moment, however, soon I was just as worried as I was before. But she had that kind of amazing experience, and she goes on to say... As a result of that experience, she found herself desperately desiring to read. She said, I wanted to read all the things that before I had, uh, that I had disdained. And because she was a literary critic for the, the masses, so she said uh, one of the things she had mocked and, and had written a review of in the masses was a poem by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. And she said, when I picked that up, I decided to read that again, and instead of mocking it, which I had done in my review, I now uh, realized it, it, was, it was profound. And it's little wonder that Thompson's poetry touched, touched her, because her life journey was captured by the writer's verse. I don't know if you've read The Hound of Heaven, but here's the, the two great stanzas. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him under running laughter. Up vistied hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after, 
but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet, all things betray thee, who betrayest me? And that poem, she said, was almost like a conversion experience as well as her mystical experience in the house when for one half minute she felt the presence of God. That's all she could say about it is that I felt his presence and I felt his love in that one half minute. And then she goes on to say that then she decided to pick up and read all the things that she had disdained before. And the, the works of C.S. Lewis had a greater impact even than Francis Thompson's poem. And then she tells of the four books she picked up in this period and read, the Screwtape Letters, the book Miracles, and The Great Divorce. And these four books, uh, these three books, had such a profound influence on her. And then she read a book by Chad Walsh, uh, which was called uh, a book about uh, uh, ministry to the skeptics. And Chad Walsh, uh, uh, she corresponded with him, and now she's now becoming a Christian. And then she goes to church. She goes first to a Presbyterian church, and then she goes to an Episcopal church. And, and then uh, and in the beginning, Bill is interested in, 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 his, in growing in faith too, but then he loses, he loses faith in it because he gets caught up with Scientology. And that began, takes over his life. But uh, in the early days, he was also going to church with her. But she went to church, and one day in the church meeting with Chad Walsh, he said, why don't you write a letter to C.S. Lewis? These three books have meant so much to you. And so she writes a letter in 1950. That's her first letter to C.S. Lewis, and he answers it. And then she uh, uh, begins a correspondence with him about these books that she had, had read that were, had meant so much to her. And then, uh, then she becomes uh, an out-in-the-open Christian, and she breaks with the Communist Party and gets, uh, uh, actually pays a heavy price for that because a newspaper in New York, uh, she, write, she writes a Christian book called Weeping Bay, and it's published, and then... Uh, the newspaper in New York called the New York Post writes a whole series of stories entitled Girl Communist, telling about her conversion to Christianity from communism. It causes a very uh, unfortunate breach between Joy and her brother Howard, who by now was a young man studying for psychiatry, and he thinks maybe she's lost her mind. But uh, she, uh, she is written up in that article, and it, it it causes her a kind of a breach in the family at that point, but uh, she uh, becomes convinced uh, of who Jesus Christ is and becomes an Orthodox Christian through her encounter with these books by Lewis, and this is all in the early 1950s. And then she decides that she's, uh, her marriage with Bill breaks up. Uh, it's, it's kind of a sad breakup, but uh, he... Uh, they had a, a lady that they were taking care of who was kind of a, a, a woman who had been in a, 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 a sad situation with her husband who had been brutal, and so they were sort of taking care of her, and Bill falls in love with her. And then she uh, 
and uh, now he wants a divorce then from Joy. And so Joy finally agrees to that, and she decides to go to England and write a book. She wanted to write a book about her Christian faith. And so she goes with her two boys. They go to London. They stay two years in London. And from there on, if you've seen Shadowlands, you know what happens after that. But he, she's there for two years in London with her two boys, and she's writing a book. She wants to express her newfound faith in Jesus Christ, but she decides to do it through the eyes of the Old Testament because she's Jewish and has a Jewish heritage. So she takes the greatest single document of Jewish heritage, which would be the Ten Commandments, and decides she wants to write a commentary on the Ten Commandments. That becomes Smoke on the Mountain. And so she comes to, to England. She uh, writes and works on this book. And, uh, and when she writes this book, it then is published. Actually, uh, uh, the, the book is published, and uh, she, uh, it's actually published the, the, the same year as she married C.S. Lewis. And that's why she dedicates it to C.S. Lewis, and he writes the, the foreword to the book, Smoke on the Mountain. So that, that was the publication date is the same. He, she married him in 1956. It was published in 1955, just as they were getting ready to get married and, uh, and had fallen in love. And so that's why she dedicates it to him, because he was such an influence in his writings on, on her life. But the book is hers. It's all hers. And it is the thing now that I want us to look at. The, the book she wrote, Smoke on the Mountain. It, it is a study of the Ten Commandments, but it's different than any other kind of Old Testament study you'll, you'll have because it's written from the perspective that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. And so she starts with that uh, premise that he is the one that makes sense out of the Ten Commandments. And here she's a young Jewish writer, but she had never practiced her Judaism because her family were, actually her mother and father were atheists, but they were uh, Polish Jews. But she, uh, uh, and then she was a communist, so obviously she was an atheist. And then she has this amazing set of experiences that convert her soundly to uh, Christ-centered faith. And so now she wants to write a book about uh, this uh, history uh, uh, of the, the, the Ten Commandments and the role it plays in the Old Testament, but she wants to write it in, in terms of its role for us today. And that's, uh, that's why it was called An Interpretation of the Ten Commandments in Terms of Today. Okay, now with that, let's take a look at the book. The book starts with Exodus 20, which starts with the fact that the people are frightened. And that's how Moses starts the, the, the telling of the Ten Commandments, the discovery of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The people have just been rescued out of the Egyptian bondage. And that is the history in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And, the, and they're frightened. That's the whole Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 begins with that frightfulness. Now all the people saw the thunderings, the lightning, and the noise and the trumpet, and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed themselves and stood far off. And Moses said to the people, fear not, for God has come to prove you 
and that you may fear your, you may have fear before your faces and so that you will not sin and this intrigued her this the fact that 10 commandments begin with the fear of the people they've just experienced redemption they've been redeemed and yet there's this fear uh, when they see this amazing smoke on the mountain and the people stood far off and Moses draws near into the thick darkness where God was and then this amazing account of Moses coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Uh, She makes a big thing of that at the beginning uh, about the the fact that the start of the the Ten Commandments starts off with the fear being, uh, with the people being rescued in their fear. So she puts it this way. And so it, so it is, if you happen to be drowning, you're drowning, and then you get this lifesaver that's thrown to you when God rescues you out of Egypt. And then she says this in, in, in kind of her own witty way. She's very witty. She says, but sooner or later, you have to, uh, uh, you, you, you were thrown the life preserver while you're drowning, but you can't drown all the time. And sooner or later, you have to start merely living again. And you reach shore, and you sputter the water out of your lungs, and then what? Then what are you supposed to do? Uh, and then, then she says, well, then you throw away your life preserver, and, and you, you pick up all the things that you thought you, that you'd left behind. And so she starts out that way. That's why the Ten Commandments have to deal with the, our remaining sins and the sins we have, and therefore you get these commands that, that are the great thou shalt not commands. And that's how Exodus 20 actually begins. The, you sin not. And that is the opening of the Ten Commandments. And, but she doesn't uh, like that as, as the beginning. So she comes at the, her last sentence in the opening of, of the Exodus 20 account is, thou shalt not is the beginning of wisdom. But the end of wisdom, the new law is thou shalt. To be a Christian is to be old, not a bit of it. To be a Christian is to be reborn and free and unafraid and immortally young. And she said, that is what uh, is going to be my interpretation take on the Ten Commandments. They're getting you ready for life, to be born again. And then she proves it by the first, uh, the opening commandments. The opening commandments... I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods uh, before you. And so in, in the Ten Commandments, uh, we, we meet uh, the Lord our God is one Lord. What a surprise. What an incredible thing to say. And then she, she makes the point that, uh, that there is, uh, we live in an age of lost faith, lost hope, empty hearts, and today the commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, must include, thou shalt have me. And so she sees the grand positive in that thou shalt not have any other gods means you shall have me. And that's how she starts her handling of the first, the first commandment, no other gods. And then uh, the second commandment is uh, no, uh, no idols. And... No other gods, no idols. You shall not not worship anything else. And uh, it's very interesting how she then decides to describe uh, idolatry. The real horror of idols 
is not merely that they give us nothing, but they take away from us even that which we have. By the active imagining power in a fetish, we rob ourselves and the Holy Spirit within us of, a, of much power. The more we look into material objects for help, the less we can help ourselves or ask help from the grace of God. If we're to be saved, we shall not be saved by wood, however well carved and polished, nor by machines, however efficient. If we're to be saved, it must be by one power that is built into a man in the beginning, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that comes from God himself, and therefore no idols. And then, then she takes on the third, which is uh, the emptying of God's name. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You shall not empty his name. And again, here she once again puts it in a, uh, a wonderful uh, kind of a fresh way. The, the corollary of the third commandment must be, thou shalt take the name of the Lord thy God in earnest. We have used the name in, in unhallowed ways, and like in swearing and all of those bad ways that we empty it, and empty of it is meaning. But let us, if we can, teach ourselves to take the name of the Lord in earnest, take it seriously, and then she has that wonderful kind of one-liner, it's high time, it's high time we did that. And then the fourth commandment. I think the fourth commandment, her handling of the fourth commandment is probably one of her weakest parts of this chapter because she gets bogged down uh, really always in a way with the Jewish problem of the fourth commandment is deciding what is work and what is rest and how do you properly keep the Sabbath. And so uh, my, my own personal feeling is that uh, probably the weakest, uh, her weakest handling of the Ten Commandments uh, I think her Christological handling of the first three commandments is brilliant. But the, the fourth commandment, I think she misses uh, some of the main things that are in the fourth commandment. The great remember, you shall remember on the fourth. You shall remember that you were uh, enslaved and were set free. And you shall remember you were a, 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 a slave, but now you're free. And you shall remember that God created the earth well, that's Exodus. And in Deuteronomy, you shall remember that you were redeemed. And that she doesn't go into as much. Instead, she mainly focuses on the battle of how to properly keep the Sabbath. And I think that was, so that makes that chapter not, in my opinion, as strong. Then when she gets to the chapter on honor thy father and mother, uh, once again, she has some, uh, she really has some really thoughtful things to say. In, in, in that point, she actually, uh, she does give, you might say, a book of wisdom advice to parents that if parents want to be honored, they have to, they, in a sense, since the word honor means to weigh heavy, they, them, they themselves have to have some weight that, that is worth honoring. And she puts that and lays that on parents. So that becomes a kind of a teaching section, or a, you might say an edification part of her handling of the Ten Commandments, where she says, once and for all, if we wish our children to honor us, we must ourselves set an example of honor. Let us drop the pretense that a sane man can or should honor the dishonorable and love the unlovely. He must indeed love the sinner, but let him not, let him not forget to hate the sin. Let him not teach children to think that a petty tyrant is a good father. She, her father beat her a great deal as a child. And he beat her until one day she scratched him. And then he never beat her again. But he, 
he beat and he beat his his uh, her brother, and so she's very much against child abuse. And so she said, "Let us not have honor thy father and mother mean that you honor a a, a father or a mother who is uh, beating their children." So he said, "There she does just really give advice, and but she ends again on a great note uh, of uh, of hope." by saying uh, uh, the best we can ever, uh, let us love and practice love and pray for love and honor then will take care of itself. The key is to love our parents and to weigh them heavy if they don't deserve the being weighed heavy, then uh, let's not uh, weigh heavy somebody who is shallow or somebody who's mean or mean-spirited. Let that let's not belittle that word but love that's what we have to do love because we have to love even those who are the sinners around us and then we let honor take care of itself then she comes to murder and murder is uh the chapter on murder is very uh, i think it's one of her high high water marks in the uh, in this in this uh, handling of the 10 commandments because here she talks about the Prince of Peace, who is the one who is greater. Uh, she talks about the fact that eye for eye and tooth for tooth is really a, a restraint on vengeance, or a restraint on runaway vengeance. But still, that's not good enough. We need something more than uh, thou shalt... Uh, we need to have a, a way of understanding uh, thou shalt not murder in a profounder way. And it's interesting, at the end of this, she decides to quote G.K. Chesterton's great poem, O God of Earth and Altar. And she says, uh, Chesterton really uh, sums it up. O God of Earth and Altar, bow down and hear our cry. Our earthly rulers falter, our people drift and die. The walls of gold entomb us, the swords of scorn divide. Take not thy thunder from us, but take away our pride. And then again, it ends with deliver us, Lord, from the terror that teaches the lies of tongue and pen, from all the easy speeches that comfort cruel men, from sale and profanation of honor and the sword, from sleep and from, from damnation, deliver us, good Lord. She said that is the best commentary on thou shalt not murder that, that I know of. And that was, she there decides to honor G.K. Chesterton who is a great uh, Christian influence on her life, too. And then she goes into adultery. She comes to the position with regard to marriage that marriage has got to be seen in two ways. It's got to be seen as something that the state manages, and, but it gets its meaning and its glory from the biblical understanding of its fulfillment of our relationship with Christ and Christ and his church. But the... Uh, she does feel uh, here and, and quotes the fact that, that the state, and in this regard, she's actually saying the same that St. Paul says in Corinthians, the state gets to define the marriage. Uh, and that's why, remember, in Corinthians, the believers who were married to somebody that was, they were married in the... Uh, and the, the, the person they were married to is not a believer. And Paul t says, 
then if they're willing to live with you, you should stay with them. And uh, because the, the state is, defines the marriage, but the meaning of marriage that you have as a believer comes from your relationship with Christ. And so she gives it that spin. And then, uh, then finally, the last commandments uh, after, uh, after the thou shalt not murder, then thou shalt not steal. And it's interesting, she, uh, she uh, comes up with a theology of stewardship with regard to steal. And, and she also has uh, some very harsh things to say about the fact that in early American life, uh, in the 19th century, uh, thou shalt not steal was used corruptly to justify the ownership of slaves. And you, they should not be set free on, because that would be stealing somebody's property, as if a human being should be your property. And so she denies that and says no human being could ever be your property. And so she uh, challenges that and uh, does a brilliant job, really, of saying that uh, thou shalt not steal raises the huge question of do we really own anything or are we stewards of what's been given to us by God? And then uh, finally she gets to... Uh, she gets to the, uh, one of the most interesting, I think, of, of all of her chapters is the one on thou shalt not covet. And she makes an interesting point, on, uh, which is the last of the commandments. And she points out that of all the commandments really have to do with action and what we do. Uh, thou shalt not covet really is about your attitude toward life and what you want. And so it's interesting the Ten Commandments end with your desire and what you want and what gives you the meaning of your life. And so there, again, she becomes Christological, and she points to the fact that the meaning of our life is to see the one who fulfills all these commandments, and that's Jesus Christ. And then her final chapter is our Lord himself in Matthew 22, when he says, uh, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. When a lawyer asks him, What is the, the great command? And Jesus answered that young lawyer, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, and thy mind. That's the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then our Lord said this, this is uh, in Matthew, On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. And so she decides to end up on that note. It's the authority of Jesus Christ gives meaning to all of the law. And... Uh, so she, she wants a law and an understanding of law that's built on that grand positive, and that's how she ends her book. That's uh, Smoke on the Mountain. Well, more to think about, more to talk about. This is Dick Staub. You're listening to The Killings Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. We'll be back with more right after that. You're listening to Killing's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries, live from Kane Hall on the beautiful University of Washington campus. And it really and truly is a beautiful place, and it's a gorgeous fall evening. And we're so glad to have all of you here in our live audience. And those of you listening on podcast at a later time, welcome to you as well. Well, we've been talking about uh, a most amazing woman, Joy Davidman, who is the wife of C.S. Lewis, and her, uh, her book on the, uh, the Ten Commandments, 
smoke on the mountain. <laughs> uh, very important to get that right. Uh, and I'd like, I'd like to, how many of you have seen Shadowlands? So you kind of know the basic story. But C.S. Lewis uh, met Joy Davidman through correspondence originally. And Earl mentioned that she wrote her first letter, I think, in 1956. No, in 1950. 1950. That's her first letter to Lewis. And, and for people that don't know, Lewis was a prolific correspondent. Yeah. So it wasn't unusual for him to answer letters. As a matter of fact, how many letters do we have now? Oh, there's in collections. Yeah. I think it's 30,000, something like yeah. that. It's that he hand-wrote responses to people who read his books and would send him questions. And So she was kind of one among many, but she then shows up in England, and at one point uh, she's... Uh, her visa is expiring. She's going to have to go back to the United States. And she asks her friend C.S. Lewis if he might be willing to help her out uh, with her visa problems. And the, the way to do that would be to marry her. Uh, and so they, they got married in a civil ceremony. Uh, and, then, and then Lewis, as, when she learned that she had cancer, Lewis realized that he really loved her. And so they had their actual of official wedding in uh, in the hospital, yeah. uh, and it's a, it's an it's an amazing story uh, in and of itself. And it's all, it's but it's it brings out so many interesting dynamics of who C.S. Lewis was as a man and who she was. When you think about what she's written, the way her mind works. What, in your view, and you've obviously read a lot on this subject, what was it that made them connect in such a way that they actually would be partners and, and married? Well, uh, it, now, it, it, again, it was Chad Walsh who uh, actually introduced them. And he made trips to Oxford, and he wanted her and Lewis to meet. And uh, so it wasn't as if she was... Some people uh, portray her as an adventurer, trying very hard to. Right. to uh, but actually, Chad, she was there two years with the two boys, with very little contact with Lewis at all, and just writing and writing and writing to work on this. Uh, well, she was writing, she was writing some novels too at the same time to earn money, and because Bill Gresham stopped his child support, he was supposed to send child support, uh, you know, and he didn't. So she had to earn money, and she did. She never asked for any money or anything from Lewis or anything like that. She just uh, was trying to write this book. And then, uh, and then of course, uh, it's true that when she was going to be deported because she, she ex exceeded her visa, that was Lewis's idea. It wasn't, she didn't engineer that and say, now if you'll marry me, then I, they won't deport me. Oh, who uh, needs truth yeah. if it's dull? Yeah. So Lewis, uh, Randy Newman Lewis, a, Lewis actually impetuously with, uh, did that. And, yeah. and you have to realize also that Lewis not only fell in love with Joy Davidman, so did his brother Warren. Yeah. Warren loved Joy Davidman. And a lot of people don't realize that Warren wrote a book and he dedicated it to Joy Davidman. Yeah. himself because he and there there's two old bachelors and I think this Shadowlands beautifully portrayed these two bachelors. But the question is what is it that had them connecting at a deeper level? Well who was she that 
she would connect with this this guy C.S. Lewis. I think I think what he liked about her was was her high Christology. It's it's interesting. She had this very I I wish I could even make more of a point of that in the in the Smoke on the Mountain. But as you, now look for it now when you go through Smoke on the Mountain, you see in every single command she's always seeing how Jesus Christ is the one who makes sense out of it all and is the one who fulfills it. And, and Lewis, remember, Lewis wrote miracles, and miracles was his most powerful Christological work. Uh, he wrote that, uh, remember a few, uh, last fall I did a, a kindling muse on that hideous strength, Lewis's most terrifying novel in the Space Trilogy, and then right after it he wrote miracles. And remember I titled that evening, uh, the power that harms and the power that heals. And because Lewis is the two books you have in at hideous strength, harm, and then that miracles, uh, profound help. But the profound help comes from the, uh, remember that great parable Jesus uh, that he creates of the diver comes down and rescues us the, and t lists a complicated burden, which is what we are, and then we are now with now we have light in our faces, down below where where he we lost our color, he lost his color too. That identification of Jesus Christ with us, and that's the thing that Joy Davidman's Christology was built on. That it, she had that swing from Marxism, and uh, and then all the way to this really strong faith in Christ, yeah. and that appealed to him. Don't now, you love Earl Palmer? Who else could say that the reason a man fell in love with a woman was her high Christology? <laughs> I, I could picture Earl on his knees before Shirley, saying, Shirley, I am attracted to your Christology. <laughs> I'm beside myself with his attraction for your Christology. I... Yeah, that's certainly part of it. Uh, let me read a few things that, that Warney said and C.S. Lewis said about this connection, because I find this to be one of the most fascinating relationships in, in public life. Uh, I mean, first of all, C.S. Lewis is a giant in his own right, and uh, you got to ask yourself what kind of woman could marry him, would want to, and that he would want to marry Here's what Warney said in his diary, Warren Lewis. A rapid friendship is developing between a Christian convert to the, of the Jewish race, medium height, good figure, so much for Christology, <laughs> horn-rimmed specs, quite extraordinarily uninhibited. Warren also wrote, for Jack, the attraction was at first undoubtedly intellectual. Joy was the only woman whom he had met who had a brain which matched his own suppleness in width of interest and an analytical grasp, and above all, this is interesting, above all, in humor and a sense of fun. You learn a lot about C.S. Lewis when you hear what Warney observed was happening in this relationship. Now, here's what Lewis himself said. He wrote to a friend, new beauty and new tragedy have entered my life. You would be surprised, or perhaps you would not, 
to know how much of a strange sort of happiness and even gaiety there is between us. And she, he said of her, she is my pupil and my teacher, my subject and my sovereign, my trusty comrade, friend, shipmate, fellow soldier, my mistress, but at the same time, all that any man friend has ever been to me. Isn't that amazing? Now, that's interesting. You see, Lewis was a man of male friends. Uh, as, as important as Dorothy Sayers was to him intellectually, he never let her come to the Inklings. And uh, though, though she lived in London, so it wouldn't be ordinary for Dorothy Sayers to come up and go to the Inklings at Oxford, and especially in a pub. And Lewis didn't think that was proper, that, that the women should come to his quarters. See, the Inklings met a lot of the time in his private quarters in Magdalen College, and he didn't think that was and proper. And so women were, were not in that. And, and Lewis, his friendships were all very male. And, uh, and, and in fact, the rule in the Inklings is everybody in the Inklings had to agree who could be brought into the Inklings. And uh, that got to be a problem with Charles Williams because Tolkien was at first not so happy about having Charles Williams in the Inklings, but then finally he relented because it had to be everybody had to agree it, that another person could join our group, you know. But it was all very male. And then now this woman is intellectually challenging him like before he was challenged by these great male friends. Yeah. And, and it is true. But she never attended the Inklings? No, no. She, uh, by then, the, uh, you know, the, they were only married four years. And remember, when they were married, he was at Cambridge. He had already gone to Cambridge to be a professor at Cambridge, but he still had the kilns and lived in the kilns. And that's where, uh, you know, after she was, they married in the hospital room. And it is true, uh, at first, it, it was a sense of justice that he, he married her, but, but it, it, uh, it's funny. After he, he was very proper. After he married her, and Warren was with him at the, at the registry office, and because then they couldn't deport her, then he immediately had her and the boys move up to a house just three blocks from the kilns. And now here they're, they're legally married, but they're not living together, and, but she, he has them move there so that they can come over every evening to the kilns. And then she gets sick and with this terrible uh, metastasis from her uh, breast cancer, and it goes to her legs. And then she's in the hospital, and they feel she will not make it. And that, and she, he pled to have the, for the Bishop of Oxford, of the, of the Church of England, to have a, a church wedding. But she was divorced, and that was against the, the canon law of the Church of England at that time. And so, uh, but a, but a, uh, a, a, a Anglican priest named Guide uh, was there to pray for her healing and because they felt she was not going to get out of that hospital. And when he saw her and saw how much Lewis loved her, he said, well, let's, why don't we have her? Let's marry. Why don't you marry her right now? And so this priest, and then he later got forgiven by the bishop for breaking the bishop's rule and said, no, she, they couldn't. And then... Uh, he married her, 
and and that then he had this amazing remission, and they got out of the hospital, and that's when they made their trip to Greece, a trip to Ireland, and she and they had a joyous time, and then suddenly the cancer came back with a vengeance, mm -hmm. and that coming back with a vengeance uh, is when Lewis wrote a grief observed, because he was there with her during that time of of that of that. Uh, very, very severe re re uh, uh, recurrence of the cancer, and then she died. As you can see, she died at age 45, and uh, and then uh, the, a, a grief observed. I don't know how many of you have read it. It's it's a fabulous work. When when my mother died, I gave my dad a copy of it, and he had already loved C.S. Lewis, but he told me it was one of the most useful books he read. Uh, when he was going through his, his grief about my mother. Many people say that Lewis, uh, she contributed something to Lewis that uh, not only uh, nurtured his intellectual, uh, his intellectual life, but there was something very much that, that brought a vulnerability into C.S. Lewis' life that he had somewhat kept at, at a distance. And a grief observed is where you see that she actually really changed his life yeah. through touching his heart. It, uh, probably most of you know, uh, uh, Douglas Gresham, his younger son, is still very involved in C.S. Lewis activities. And uh, he was, I think, 11 when his mother died, something like that. And he tells wonderful stories about how Lewis, in his own way, tried to comfort him. But... Uh, Gresham also tells the story that uh, when C.S. Lewis died, they found dozens and dozens of a copy of uh, a book by a man named N.W. Clerk, which was the pseudonym that Lewis used when he wrote A Grief Observed. So these people didn't know that Lewis had written it, and they brought it and gave it to him to comfort him. <laughs> And for any of you that are bibliophiles, there is a copy available for $500 online right now of the original copy with the other, the other name on it. But uh, So when you think about what, what she brought into his life and the, obviously the children and everything else, I mean, what are some of the other things that well, you've you Well, you know, the, the actual uh, time of... Uh they loved to talk theology, obviously, because she was a, a, theo a, a theologically brilliant woman. And, uh, and also, she was a writer of great skill. Uh, many people believe that uh, Tell We Have Faces, which is the novel, the big novel Lewis wrote. Some people call it the, the finest thing he ever wrote. I wouldn't call it that, but m many people do. And Joy, Joy Davidman actually helped him in the early stages of writing that book, the, uh, the Tell We Have Faces, his big final novel. And uh, so again, she played that role. She also got him to write his book on the Psalms. Mm. Because, see, she had now done Ten Commandments. She said, now what about you writing something about the, whole, the Old Testament? And so she got him to write his reflections on the Psalms. Mm. So she played that role. And another little aside is that, you know, Tolkien uh, was offended that Lewis had never let him in. He's the best friend of Lewis, and yet when uh, I wrote a paper on Tolkien and Lewis's friendship, and when uh, there was a breach in their friendship a little bit when Lewis showed up with this American woman 
who is now his wife, and Tolkien didn't know anything about her. And he was offended that he had not, not been brought in at all. Lewis kept it a kind of just between him, his brother and himself and, and, and Joy. And then, but in the hospital, Joy met Edith, Tolkien's wife. And Edith did not like Oxford because she had never gone to college. Edith Tolkien, her husband is one of the most esteemed professors at Oxford. But there is a kind of, there is a kind of, smugness and if you saw Shadowlands they did it they did that beautifully in one of the in one scene at a cocktail party because there was a smugness that among the women in Oxford in terms of what what role your husband had and rank he had and what what your own education had been and that would be the conversation that would be held at cocktail parties is the latest thing that you're doing and stuff like that intellectually and and Edith raised Tolkien's children, but she had she was an orphan herself, and that's where they first met in the orphanage, where Tolkien's was in an orphanage too, and he met this girl that was uh, three years older, and he fell in love with her, but Father uh, uh, Morgan would not let Tolkien even write a letter to her until he was 21, and then at the, because he was the, he was uh, uh, the uh, uh, guardian of the Tolkien and his brother. But at any rate, Edith hated Oxford. So that the moment that Tolkien uh, retired with Edith, they left Oxford. And the minute she died, Tolkien came back to Oxford and lived his last life in Merton College. But not when his wife was, but his wife did not like Oxford. And guess who she reached out to and made a friend of? Joy Davidman. They met in the hospital and Edith said, Finally, somebody that hates Oxford, too, and, and hates these parties, and hates the sort of smugness of the party. And Joy, of course, being terribly bright and terribly brash with spicy English language use. And she, if you saw the movie, the, the great line was when the guy said something and, at the party, and she said, are you, are you stupid or are you just rude? She said to him when he said something to her, and in, the, in Shadowlands, Lewis is standing there smiling at it all and loved it. He loved that sense of humor that Joy Davidman had, and that is true. She had that, and it comes out in what she writes. It comes out in Smoke on the Mountain. I like it. It's, it's high time we take God's name seriously. Very interesting. Well, we'll be back with questions and comments from our beloved audience right after this. You're listening to The Kindling's Views and Earl Palmer's Well, this is Tim Staub. You're listening to The Kindling's Views at Earl Palmer Ministries. And tonight we're talking about Joy Davidman, who is the author of Smoke on the Mountain. It is her study of uh, the Ten Commandments. We've also included a discussion of uh, Lyle Dorset's book, And God Came In, which is the biography of Joy Davidman, uh, and it's a very interesting book as well, so you might be wanting to explore that as well. Well, let's get to some of your questions and comments tonight, and we're going to start with Jim. Uh, Earl, you had mentioned early in, your, in the hour that it was her grand purpose to prove... Uh, uh, that Jesus was uh, the embodiment of, of now the Ten Commandments. Could you drill down on that a little bit more? 
and tell us how she did that? Yeah, she, uh, in other words, what she did was to uh, treat, uh, to treat the Old Testament text as uh, anticipating its Messiah. And even the Ten Commandments anticipate the one who can fulfill them, because we can't. And uh, the, the ten, like Luther said, the Ten Commandments are like a mirror that show you who you are, but they don't redeem you. And so you can't be redeemed by just slavishly following those, those commandments unless you discover the Lord of the commandments. It's the Lord of the commandments who is able to fulfill them and then empowers you. Like notice the very first of the thing I, I quoted her where she said, it's not just that when we're, when we're old, we have followed all these things. No, it's a new birth. We're looking for a new birth. A birth that comes from discovering the Lord of the commands, and so anyway, that's that was that's her take. She's and that's why it's interesting that she would needle Lewis into writing his book on this on the Psalms, reflections on the Psalms. And some of you may know that I did a thing on Psalms last year, and it, well, you know, this year, but last April at New College Berkeley. And I did a whole uh, day on the Psalms. And I took the same tack on the Psalms. The Psalms uh, have raised all the right questions and have all the right hopes. But they don't tell you how the Psalm will be fulfilled. And, uh, and, and you need the Lord of the Psalms to fulfill them. Uh, they, they, raise the, they raise the questions, but they, you need the Lord who fulfills it. And she saw that. And, you know, in a way... Was that a unique insight well, it's on your unique, part? It's unique because most people who do a study of the Ten Commandments or a study of the prophets put the prophets strictly in the setting of the prophets, and, or, and which, is, which is authentic. It's good to see it in its own setting. But a lot of times uh, some theologians will mock what she did. She dares to say, all right, I, I don't want to just look at these commands. I want to see uh, who fulfills them. And obviously we don't. We, we've, uh, that would be legalism. And legalism has never, uh, never comforted us. It makes us self-righteous, and it makes us uh, uh, you know, uh, focus on ourselves. But it's Jesus Christ who fulfills them. And so she decided to take that tack, and she does it all the way through it sometimes more successfully than other times. I felt, for instance, the fourth commandment where she had a great chance to, just to use the word remembering and using the, the rhythmic view of life that's in the, in the fourth commandment and the fact that that commandment does get you ready for Messiah too in, in, in the, the most one. And that, that was the only one I felt she kind of got bogged down by getting into the entrapment that the Jews themselves got into. Uh, can, can you, what can you eat on the Sabbath? And what can you do on the Sabbath that won't break the law of God? No, no, don't go that route. It, it, it just it go for the fulfillment of, of the Sabbath. All right, Joe, uh, what is your question? Yes, thank you, Earl. Uh, where did Joy stand politically after, she, after her conversion, after she moved from communism? Now, what was that? Repeat that again. So yeah. I got. Where did Joy wind up politically after her conversion, after she left communism? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, she got into real trouble. That's why she, the, she was going to be deported. That 
we we didn't uh, we didn't make a big point of that, but they were going to deport her because she was still technically a member of the American Communist Party, and the the, the Brits were not about to have a communist rolling around, uh, you know, unchecked and unnoticed in England, and but she. Uh, Yes, she, she was. And I don't know if you know, but remember during the hearings in the, the House Un-American Activities Committee on the script writers of Hollywood that were the communists? Uh, some of those were, one of those was Joy Davidman, and that's why she lost her movie contracts. Another reason she had to leave, because she, she well, she started writing novels then. And uh, by then she'd become a Christian anyway, and she didn't want to write any more communist uh, stories or scripts so but it is true um, she uh, she became sort of non-political uh, I, I think that happened to a lot of people that, that got burned by being so caught up in the uh, in the uh, ideology of Lenin and the ideology of and, and it, well, I thought it was funny though that what cured her uh, intellectually was Writing for the masses. That is the main communist magazine in the United States during those days. And she was fortunately the book review editor. And by writing the reviews and realizing these stories are ridiculous. Because I can tell you in the, it's like my, I used to make fun of Murder, She Wrote. My, my, my family, the girls in my family all loved to watch Murder, She Wrote. With the, you know, Angela Lansbury is fabulous to watch, but it had but, a low Christology. No, but I no, <laughs> but I made a joke in our family. I said at the beginning of Murder She Wrote, every episode I looked at a lot of those. I'd say, "Aha, the plot thins," because <laughs> because within twenty minutes I could tell who's going to get murdered. It's always the most obnoxious person because otherwise the audience gets upset. It's it's the who's going to get murdered, who's going to get accused of the crime, uh, and he's going to be the nicest guy there, but he's going to get accused of, and then Agatha will will solve it. But I I used to say that to the family, the plot thins, and and that was what she saw in these plots. They're they're ridiculous. Communist novelists were really bad novelists. Because you've got to have the proletariat has got to win. Otherwise, it's, it's not proper. And so then you've got to have the wealthy person has got to be evil, and the wealthy person has got to you know, face his comeuppance. But the, uh, the worker has got to win. And after a while, every story is identical. And so she started saying that in her reviews and then getting in trouble you know, with the... Uh, by then, she was on her way out of the party, though. <laughs> and then her husband, poor guy, gets caught up with uh, L. Ron Hubbard, who is the founder of Scientology. And he got entrapped in that. Poor guy. Well, it's been another fascinating evening with uh, Reverend Earl Palmer, and I know that you've enjoyed yourself. <laughs> you can go read more of Joy Davidman, uh, Smoke on the Mountain. And you can read the biography of Joy Davidman uh, by Lyle Dorset. This is what C.S. Lewis had placed on Joy's grave. And it's something he had originally uh, written at the death of Charles Williams, but he adapted it. He said, Here the whole world, stars, water, air, field, and forest, as they were, reflected in a single mind. 
like cast off clothes, was left behind in ashes, yet with hopes that she, reborn from holy poverty in Lenten lands, hereafter may resume them on her Easter day. Beautiful. That's, that's on her grave. That's yeah. on her grave. Well, this is Dick Staub. You've been listening to Killing's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. Join us again next time. Until then, have a great day.